Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Rob Doyle, Director of Equity Research at B Finance. Rob, welcome. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. China is becoming a, a larger part of the MSCI World Index. Can you give us a bit of a background on how asset allocators are sort of building China into their exposure? Uh, yeah, sure. So, you know, most institutional investors, you know, apparently it's around sort of 70, 75% uh, will get their China exposure through a global emerging market or gem strategies which, you know, as, as the name suggests, obviously have the, the flexibility to allocate across the, the full spectrum of, of emerging markets. So among those other 30-odd percent, you know, there's a split between those who are achieving China exposure through, you know, regional Asia-Pacific uh, equity strategies, uh, those using sort of global all-country strategies that allow emerging markets exposure, and then also those, you know, probably a small, a very small minority who are allocating directly to China itself. Um, so, so I guess given that the sort of gem strategies are most prevalent among investors today, you know, if we look at the, the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, you know, the reference benchmark used by, by pretty much everyone in this space, uh, the sort of headline exposure to China is around 35%. Um, but I guess when we think about active gem equity strategies, you know, we, we see very significant divergence in their exposure to China. Um, so, you know, I, I can think of managers who are, you know, very structurally underweighted around sort of 5% exposure, and then those who will, will take very, very big positions at, at sort of 50 60%. So, you know, we clearly get these, these big extremes in terms of, of how managers think about China. Um, I guess the majority of managers tend to be somewhere like 25 to, to 35% in the overall exposure. Uh, and I guess most often, in my experience, it's common for managers to be sort of underweight this, this, uh, this country than, uh, than overweight. And I mean, there's obviously a, you know, sort of a myriad of reasons why active managers will take these different positions in China and have different views. And I guess for the majority, it'll be more about the, the sort of bottom-up opportunity set of, of China versus you know, broader emerging markets. Um, but I guess at a sort of a high level, you know, what we tend to find is, is those that are sort of overweight are you know, quite growth focused or, or looking to tap into that Chinese domestic con- consumption story. Uh, whereas those with those sort of significant underweights tend to be those with a, I'd say a, a sharper focus on, on things like corporate governance or ESG, where they, you know, they perhaps can't, can't get quite comfortable with, with the domestic China, Chinese market versus, versus others. Um, and I think what's, you know, what's particularly interesting about China really, and I think it's something that, that does get overlooked quite, quite often is, you know, there's, there's different ways to invest in China and Chinese companies and you know, managers' style and their investment remit can really dictate, you know, what type of companies they, they can invest in. Um, so I guess to, to kind of give us a bit, a bit of background here, so you know, very briefly, there's, there's sort of really three types of securities that, that are most relevant here. Um, so there's, there's A-shares, which are the you know, securities listed on, on mainland domestic Chinese exchanges. Uh, you've got hate shares, which are securities of Chinese companies that are listed in Hong Kong. And then you've got the uh, ADRs or American Depository Receipts, which are you know, effectively US listed securities that, that represent Chinese companies. Um, so, you know, between these three types of security, you know, investors can, can really allocate to China quite differently. You know, aside from the, you know, the obvious difference of being listed in different countries, you know, it's really the type of exposure you get from each, each security that's most interesting. And I think that, that often drives how, how active managers position themselves at an underlying level. You know, for example, you know, many sort of consumer, defensive, um, new energy, healthcare stocks are, are really only listed on the, the domestic uh, Shanghai or, or Shenzhen exchanges. 
Uh, whereas you know many of the, the sort of largest well-known tech, tech firms that, that you know the likes of Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu uh, are listed offshore in, in Hong Kong or the U.S. Uh, I think you know, market cap is also a relevant point here because the offshore market is you know heavily dominated by the large and the mega caps, whereas you know the smaller and the mid-cap companies, with you know with very few exceptions, really are are, are really accessible through the the onshore Chinese market. Um, so you know when we sort of look at China as, as, a, as a bigger piece of the the index, you know I said there's sort of 35% weighting to China in the, the emerging markets. You know Asia has really represent only a small fraction. Uh, that's you know primarily due to the way in which MSCI has introduced them in a, in a very sort of staggered, gradual way through through the use of an exclusion uh, an inclusion factor. Um, so you know whether looking at the index level or, or most you know, gem equity portfolios. You know, investors would typically have you know no more than five percent, and, and probably in some cases zero exposure to to A shares. I think in part this this really reflects you know, in some in some ways the sort of history and the, the evolution of the Chinese market, because you know really until just a, a few years ago, investors, you know, foreign investors in particular, could not really invest in A shares whatsoever. And even today, really, there are you know pretty significant restrictions on on the percentage of a company that uh, that can be held by foreign investors. So. You know, given the A shares, you know, were effectively off limits until until just a few years ago. You know, many overseas asset managers really lacked that expertise and, and insight to understand how to invest in this domestic market. And I think what we've seen so far is this sort of baby steps approach, almost. You know, where they're um, you know they're, they're just putting their, their, their toe into the market to see how the market behaves and, and get that understanding. Um, so I think we generally see managers being very underweight to, to this A share market. Um, and taking very clear steps to kind of build this exposure, you know, whether that's you know, hiring dedicated, experienced A-share analysts or, I guess, you know, at a more simple level, just ensuring they've got you know, Mandarin speakers that can interact with companies in, on the mainland in China because typically the, the ability to speak English with these companies is, is somewhat limited compared to, to elsewhere. Um, so, yeah, you know, really what we see in, in terms of sort of ma- Investors having gem equity strategies for the most part, uh, typically having sort of 25 to 35% to China, but this exposure really being very, very focused, quite narrow, uh, you know, on the offshore markets rather than the domestic market, and really having that sort of clear bias towards the, the larger mega caps, the, the names that everybody knows, I guess, uh, the relatively well covered companies. Um, so I think that's something that, that investors need to be aware of if they have gem equity strategies, just to, to understand the type of exposure they've got to China, and perhaps it's not the the underlying economic exposure that they they might expect, um, but I think one of the interesting points here, and I guess kind of topical with what's going on in Hong Kong at the moment, you know, when we when we think about this sort of onshore offshore um, difference, you know, whether hate shares will continue for, to, to be viewed as sort of offshore securities, or whether that that becomes more of a, an onshore play, you know, that's something that I think will will be quite interesting to see over the next few months as to how managers treat that exposure and, and what impact that has. Mm-hmm. You covered a, a lot of ground there, and we can we can start to dig into all those different parts. One of the things I wanted to get back to, probably at the top level, is that for a lot of asset allocators, they've been looking at China maybe as sort of the implicit allocation to China through their DM, you know, the developed market allocation, um, or maybe how they can play China around their EM. How do you how do you sort of see that evolving? I know you talked about sort of a specific China allocation, but do you feel that there's still a bit of hesitation around um, the implementation? Around China as a as a allocation. Yeah, I think the the, the sort of DM point is, is quite interesting, and you know I think a lot of investors will take that sort of broad approach to equity investing, and, and will have you know whether it's a global developed strategy or a global sort of all country strategy, which you know either will have 
you know, a, a good dose of, of sort of Chinese underlying revenue exposure or actually have some Chinese companies themselves. And I think on the latter, the, the all-country strategies, when they when they do invest in China, it does tend to be very focused on, again, those those very well-known offshore names, um, the Alibabas and Tencents. You know, even if we look at the, the Acqui index today, which which is, you know, I guess, what most people would use, those two companies alone are sort of one and a half percent of the index. So I think we tend to see a, you know, a clear herding around those names and, and perhaps not not really getting exposure to to sort of a broader a broader piece of China and just very focused on that tech side. So I think that's that's what most investors will get with with global all country strategies, just that that higher level exposure to China rather than the sort of underlying fundamental level. Mm-hmm. I think from a, a developed market strategy perspective, I think the underlying revenue exposure is probably probably less than than, than many might expect. Um, it, it's typically around sort of that ten to fifteen percent of, of overall revenue exposure coming from China. So you know, certainly not insignificant, but perhaps not as as, as large as, as as many might uh, might expect. Um, so I think that that is is something that, that investors should be aware of. I think what what's also interesting, you know, not so much in the past or where we are today, but I guess going forward. You know, I think the, the sort of Chinese approach now is to move from this more sort of export-driven approach to to something f- focusing on sort of domestic consumption and uh, you know sort of new 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 wave of, of companies within China. Um, so there's a p- potential for it to become a little bit more insular and, and companies in, in China being a, a bit more focused on the domestic market rather than the export market. So th- there's a sense perhaps that those sort of higher-level strategies, those global strategies, will not be you know digging into the weeds of the Chinese companies and, and continuing to play in that. That sort of offshore market where you know perhaps they're not quite as connected to to what's going on in the Chinese economy as as perhaps some of the, the smaller the mid caps would be that are, are based actually in China itself. So yeah, I think I think it's definitely been a common approach that we've seen from investors. You know, taking that global exposure, and, you know, expecting or hoping there's some some underlying implicit China exposure. But you know, I think that that is something that's going to evolve uh, potentially over the coming years. You know, as asset allocators start to sort of dip their toe more directly into China, and you sort of mentioned the the, the particular companies in China, that the domestic ones that are domestically focused, so you can't get that access from from DM particularly. You know, as you start to think about the different ways they can access China, you sort of mentioned A shares, A shares, and ADRs. As as an investor looks at those three different ways of investing, is there very significant um, challenges around the legal constructs for each of those different uh, forms of of access? Um, yeah, I think I think this is this is quite an interesting point, and you know I think it does it does make a difference as to how you invest in China and and, and what what your manager can do uh, if they have more flexibility. So, you know, in terms of that sort of legal legal construct, I think this this really gives rise to this idea of, of, of relative value within China, uh, which is probably not something that we, we tend to see in other countries because you know structurally they they they, they kind of don't don't really allow it. So. You know, within China, it's it's effectively sort of impossible to directly arbitrage away opportunities that that kind of open up between you know the, the A share and, and the H share market. Um, you know, typically that that's due to, to sort of short selling restrictions um, or, or capital controls or capital controls. Um, so I guess what what tends to happen really is, you know, the two markets you know trade pretty heavily out of sync with one another at any given time. Um, so you know, if if an investor is looking to you know, build exposure to Chinese banks, for example. You know, they could do this through the onshore securities or offshore securities, and the inefficiencies really between these these two markets mean that you know companies, you know, within the same space, you know, versus, ones are listed offshore versus onshore, they can trade at you know very you know, materially different valuation levels. Um, so really, the investor can look to gain some relative value by investing in the sector via the, I guess, the sort of cheaper route. 
Um, you know, I think the this inefficiency you know, is partly due to those those sort of legal constructs that you you mentioned. Uh, but I think also what what kind of drives this this relative value opportunity really is is kind of sentiment as well. So we see this sentiment is just a huge part of the the sort of domestic Chinese market. You know, it's, it's so driven by you know, retail individual investors. Um, you know, as opposed to the offshore market, which tends to be a bit more institutional minded. Um, so we get these huge bubbles in sentiment that, that really drive this significant sort of disconnect in pricing, you know, where the domestic investors can only invest in the onshore securities rather than the offshore securities. So you know, for those investors who can invest in the different markets and the different securities, you know, they really have the flexibility to kind of capitalize on these, these sentiment bubbles, you know, not only when they're, they're building, but, but I guess also when they're, they're sort of bursting as well. Um, but I think that, that's kind of more at a, perhaps a sort of a market level or a sector level, perhaps. You know, I think when we look at the individual stock level, you know, there's actually around 100 companies or so that, that are dual listed in, in the domestic market and the offshore market. Uh, and I think you know, we see this elsewhere in, in the developed markets, for example. It's, it's relatively common to have dual listings. But you know, I think one would you know, reasonably expect these two different securities to trade very closely, sort of, if not perfectly in parallel, given that they are effectively the same company. But actually, you know, in China, they, they, they trade completely out of step with each other for the most part. Um, so, you know, the sentiment aspect here in China, which, you know, I'd say is, is, is usually positive. Um, so it means there's, there's typically a, a pretty big premium attached to A shares versus the, the H share counterparts, really. So, you know, in, in other markets, this kind of anomaly would be arbitraged away by, by shorting. But, you know, in China, that, that can't really happen. So you get these discrepancies that just, you know, they, 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 they pop up and they persist for, for quite a long period of time. Um, so, you know, there's, there's actually an index that, that tracks this, this discrepancy itself and, you know, it's that the relative price premium between these companies are dual listed in 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 Asia, in Asia market versus the H share market, and that currently sits at, a, at around 130 to, to indicate you know a significant premium on on A shares versus H shares, and and really that that index never really dips below 100 to indicate that the premium are H shares, and even when it does, it tends to bounce back pretty quickly. Um, so it's it's quite an interesting interesting um, aspect of China that, that we don't see elsewhere. I think you know, maybe it's what I was saying, sort of from a practical implementation standpoint, um, you know, most most managers that kind of focus their efforts on A shares, you know, they, they do afford themselves a little bit of flexibility to invest in the H share market, you know, really because of this disconnect. Um, so this this premium or this, this this discrepancy is is well known and well understood and accepted. Uh, I guess with you know with asset managers being fiduciaries for their for their clients, you know, they, they kind of build these strategies. Uh, to kind of invest in the security they think will deliver the best perceived outcome for the investor. And, you know, in many cases, that might be H shares versus A shares. So, you know, there is that little bit of flexibility. They're not that sort of going blind into A shares because they can't uh, they can't invest in H shares. I think that there's a little bit of common sense that has to, to play into it. So, yeah, I mean, this concept of sort of relative value is you know, well known in, in the investment markets, but I think it, it probably takes on a little bit of a, a different meaning when it comes to uh, to long-only Chinese equities. And it's, it's, it's probably probably quite unique, I would say. Let's just dig into to one piece. You talked about the the sentiment and and retail um, investors and their impact. You know, how do you think about sort of the the evolution of the Chinese market? You know, from an institutional investor standpoint, they're obviously looking to see that the market's sort of stable. You know, have you seen a stability around sort of correlation around the volatility of the market and the correlation of Chinese securities with with U.S. stocks or versus you know UK or versus Australia? Are you seeing a, a, an evolution there that's that's occurring? Yeah, uh, absolutely. We are um, in terms of correlation. So, you know, if we look at so the onshore market versus you know broader gem equities, which I think is, is is what people are thinking about in terms of correlation, perhaps today, you know, 
I think a lot of people will look at these markets and, and notice that the correlation on a, on a long-term view is, I'd say, relatively relatively low at sort of 0.5 um, on a 10-year view. You know, that's definitely increased over the last sort of three to five years as as flows into China have increased and it's become a little bit more internationalized in terms of the investor base. So, you know, this, this increase in correlation really is, is not too much of a surprise and you know, in part is, is driven by that sort of opening up of the, the domestic market to overseas investors. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's not as closed off as it, as it definitely once was. Um, so we, we see this sort of increased coupling with with not only gem equities, but also developed markets as well. Um, and I think, I think you know, the correlation point, you know, we tend to think of these numbers like, like 0 0.7, 0 0.5 as, you know, relatively high, which, you know, in a correlation standpoint from, a, from an absolute perspective, they are. But, you know, clearly we're talking about you know, long-only equities and, you know, global equity markets do tend to follow a pretty similar direction for the most part, um, or being sort of move, moving at a different magnitude and a different different pace. Uh, but, you know, for, for sort of individual developed markets, we tend to see that correlation of 0 0.8, 0 0.9, where they, they do move sort of in tandem. Um, I, I guess the key with correlation really here is, is that we wouldn't expect them to be low in that absolute sense, but uh, I think a number of, of sort of 0 0.5, 0 0.6, 0 0.7 is actually a reasonable diversifier for a, a long-only equity portfolio. But you know, this correlation point, I think, is is, is something that the people we're thinking about when they they look at China versus Gem uh, and whether there is a, a benefit to taking that dedicated Chinese exposure uh, from a, from a return standpoint. I guess to me, you know, the rationale really for having a, a dedicated China allocation within a, within a Gem equity portfolio is is not sort of first and foremost about diversification of returns. And I think to me, you know, my perspective is that you'd really invest in a dedicated China product to allocate to China in a way that provides you know, the, the optimal, most efficient exposure to the, the full opportunity set in, in the market. So not being limited by you know whether a manager has that experience or ability to trade in the market uh, and can do so effectively. So you know this, this this point about how the market is constructed. You know uh, you know the domestic market seems to to really behave like like nothing else in the world really. And that, that I, th I think more so than anywhere there is a strong case for having this part of a portfolio managed by by a specialist and someone who has been doing it for a long period of time, which, you know, for the most part, you know, gem equity managers have not been able to do this. Um, so I guess to me, you know, diversification, something of a secondary consideration, uh, but, but like I said, that, that number like, like 0.7 is actually a reasonably good level of diversification for a, a long only equity strategy. Um, but, but I guess, you know, correlation is one thing and clearly it's, it's something that, that people think about, but I guess the other aspect is, you know, in terms of actual you know, absolute performance, whether these markets are performing, uh, similarly or differently, um, so you know while the correlations have increased, we've seen you know pretty wide divergence between the performance of China and uh, you know not only sort of uh, global emerging markets more broadly, but, but developed markets as well. You know Q1 was obviously a, a, a pretty pretty stark contrast in terms of performance of, of China versus other markets. You know it's, it sort of fell by by half of what the, the broader emerging markets did in Q1. Um, you know even if we look year to date, so China's up sort of 20 20 percent. Whereas most you know, developed markets, emerging markets are, are broadly just back to, to where they started the year. Um, so yeah, th this point about correlation, uh, I guess the other point of it really is is, is how uh, sort of onshore Chinese equity market fits within a, a broader equity portfolio, to, to, I guess to your point. Um, so yeah, again, what we've seen really is, is this sort of coupling of the relationship between developed markets and emerging markets. Um, yeah, the last couple of years have been you know, particularly obvious. Um, so the correlation between the MSCI World and the MSCI EM index is, is around 0.8 now, which is you know is, is is relatively high compared to where it has been in the past. Um, so when you think about it from this perspective, you know the correlation between 
China and developed markets is more like 0.6. So there is definitely a diversification benefit to be had by having that that dedicated China exposure. Um, I guess maybe maybe sort of taking this forward, I think we kind of uh, we kind of touched on this already, but you know from this this more sort of forward looking view as to, to where China is going rather than than where the correlations have been. You know I think it's not necessarily a given that this correlation will will increase from here. You know you know sort of trade tensions with the U.S. might be a factor that, that determines how this progresses. Um, but I guess the, the the bigger part of this really is, is you know we sort of know or I led to believe really that the China is in the process of, of pivoting its economy to this this more domestic approach. And you know if, if this does happen and we see this sort of decoupling of potentially we see a further decoupling of of China versus the rest of the world. So yeah, it's not this foregone conclusion that, that correlations will continue to rise because there are you know, potential triggers that could uh, could send it the other way or, or keep it roughly where it is. Are there significant differences between sort of a growth, a value, and a quality sort of perspective? I know you talked about dispersion of returns. You know, how do you think about maybe even merging these different strategies to complement each other? Yeah, from, I guess from a style perspective, you know, what we see really is is definitely a, a prevalence of, of growth-minded investors. I think we tend to see relatively concentrated growth-tilted portfolios for the most part in, in the Chinese market. You know, I think value is something that's probably compared to other markets is is, is relatively uh, less common I think the the idea really with, with value investing is is you kind of want that security of balance sheet and corporate governance and something that's going to support the share price over the short medium long term I think the the idea of sort of corporate governance in China and, and that reliability of balance sheet is, is perhaps less strong than than we see in other markets so there is I suppose there's more of a sort of value trap risk in China I think managers are quite cognizant of that and, and perhaps are less likely to go into those sort of more uh, value opportunities as we probably see them in, in, in other markets. So I think there's there's definitely um, a prevalence of, of growth versus value. But I think what we do tend to find really is, is a is a focus on quality. And I think this this idea of corporate governance is probably as important. It's, I guess it's important everywhere, of course, but I, I think in, in China it's, it's particularly important. I think we, we see a heightened level of focus on that from, from asset managers. So I think you should expect to see managers with with a quality sort of bias somewhere in their in their approach. You know whether that's in the way they think about companies or in the actual portfolio they they built. Um, but really, that can be complemented with with growth or value quite 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 um, quite quite easily. Um, I think what we we've tended to see in, in terms of, sort of combining strategies is perhaps less on the less on the investment style side, um, but but perhaps more on the the, the type of management style, you know, whether it's fundamental discretionary versus um, systematic quantitative products, and I think again the the prevalence really of strategies is is, is in that sort of discretionary space. Uh, we see relatively few quant managers out there, and the ones that do tend to be the sort of well-known global asset managers who, who've sort of applied their, their sort of well-established quant models into China. Um, but we have seen. Uh, we have seen investors kind of like this idea of combining one systematic strategy, which I guess in, in theory or in expectation should be sort of more more stable in terms of its performance profile, perhaps lower risk, uh, but but much more consistent. And then pairing that with a, a more aggressive sort of growth or value uh, strategy alongside it. So, yeah, we, we, I think the the style complementarity is, is something that actually is not really taken off quite yet. And I think there's perhaps not um, not that sort of depth of universe of the different styles yet to be able to really do that effectively i think what we have seen with clients is that interest in yeah in, in pairing sort of systematic um more sort of core perhaps approach with with something that's a bit more aggressive as sort of a satellite 
uh, satellite position. So, yeah, that's um, that's something that we, we have seen. Is that is that core piece? Okay, you go given the core sort of the more systematic piece, but then the the satellite is that really a highly concentrated portfolio with sort of 15, 20 stocks? Is that typically how it's approached? Yeah, I think I think concentrated obviously is, is something that will, will mean different things to different people. Um, I think what we we see with, with China is, is probably something similar to what we see in in emerging markets. So that this sort of level of, of concentrated as as managers would would define it would would be more in the sort of thirty to fifty stock range. Um, so perhaps not not concentrated versus a a global developed market strategy, but but certainly concentrated for an emerging markets portfolio. Um, yeah, I, I think we don't think we come across any um, super concentrated strategies that sort of fifteen to twenty level. But you know, I think they they do exist. Um, there are managers who are, as I said, sort of if they're running that sort of thirty to, to forty stock portfolio, for example, most of them are quite happy to to carve that out and build a higher conviction product on a client by client basis. Uh, but I think most people are not at the position yet where they, they necessarily need or want that that super focused allocation to China as, as they might do in the US, for example, because they they might have um, you know, significant overlapping positions elsewhere in their equity portfolio. I think with China, you know, you, you're probably getting exposure to some of these companies for the first time and, and it's the only part of your portfolio. So I think there's there's less um, less of a tendency to want these these particularly high conviction positions and I guess wanting something a little bit more more diverse, more more broad in terms of getting exposure to China. Um, so yeah, it's it's concentrated relative to to emerging markets, but perhaps not relative to developed markets. I would say in terms of how they're positioned. So you talked a little bit about sort of the, the types of managers that you're looking for. Do you have a, a preference or is there a bias for allocators in terms of? Uh, managers that are onshore, you know, actually operating in China or offshore, is there a, quite a distinct difference there? Um, there is there's not actually. It's it's it's, it's definitely um, it's an interesting point, and I think it's something that definitely clients have, have sort of asked us about. You know whether they they can they can do this in a, in a relatively low risk um, manner, so to speak. Um, so. You know, I guess looking at it from a sort of performance perspective, whether these local boutique, boutique managers based in China, you know, have any sort of information ledge or performance edge over the sort of well-known global asset managers that we're, we're all familiar with. I mean, our analysis on this shows that really there's there's, there's no particular difference um, in performance between you know, the median local manager versus the median global asset manager. Um, but actually, the, the sort of top performers over most time periods that we've looked at really have actually been those those larger firms. Um, so I think, you know, in our view, there's not really any reason why one should be necessarily better than the other. You know, the, 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 the global asset managers are based in, um, you know, Hong Kong or on the mainland. So they're as close to these markets as the local, the local players. So there's not really any sort of inv- informational edge. Um, you know, they're, 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 they're familiar with the market. They're experienced investors in their own right. They're not sort of coming from, from other places and trying to, to apply what they've done previously to China. So there's you know, the experience really is comparable for, for both types of firms. Um, I, I think what we've tended to see with the work we've done and the, the manager searches we've done in China is, you know, when, when sort of push comes to shove at the, the end of a process, there is sort of a tendency to favor these these larger names to sort of minimize that perception of, I guess, operational risk, perhaps, you know, for, for those sort of setting up seg mandates, which is typically what, what investors have done with uh, through us. Um, I think doing this with a, a Chinese boutique that you've never heard of, you know, perhaps this will, will you know, it's likely to require some more thorough operational DD, you know, whereas going with that sort of well-known brand name gives that you know, immediate sense of, of safety and security and perhaps that ODD point is, 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 is much less relevant. 
Um, so I think, you know, the, the key really and what we found so far is that, you know, asset owners can gain access to this market by investing with firms that they, you know, already know or work with maybe on, on different parts of their portfolio rather than sort of, you know, venturing into this this unknown with a, a manager that they've, they've never come across. Um, I think, you know, while this, this sort of alpha alpha point is, is, is relevant and, and, and sort of you know, clearly it's been very strong, you know, investors today really should not necessarily expect to see this high level of alpha going forward. Um, I think this, this speaks to sort of the ongoing institutionalization of, of China. Um, you know, I think we've seen foreign investors gain a, a greater prominence here and taking a bigger share of the market. So we should uh, we should see a, a more sort of stabilized uh, approach to, to sort of alpha generation here. Is there a big difference between the fees on, on onshore and, and uh, the offshore, the more global investors, the global managers, sorry? Yeah, so the, I mean, there's, there's a couple of different ways to to look at this, really. So the onshore strategies, I think, for, for the most part, are relatively established. So the, the local boutiques have been doing this for a while. Um, clearly, the, the, the larger asset managers, for the most part, have been doing this for, for quite a long time as well. So they're, they're quite established strategies in their own right. Uh, most will have sort of five plus years track record. Um, so, so it can can command a, a fee that kind of uh, is based in something in terms of performance delivery. Um, so, what we tend to find is is the A share strategy would typically be priced not dissimilarly to global emerging market strategies. So, you know, for a, let's say a 100 million uh, ticket to, to this asset class, you could expect something in the region of sort of 60 to 75 basis points, depending on the manager, which is, is very sort of comparable to what we'd see in, in emerging markets. I think looking at the other types of strategies, so whether it's the, the pure offshore strategies, which you know, focus really on, on the HCM market and, and the ADRs, you know, the, these are the, the sort of stalwarts in, in the China in the China landscape. You know, they've been around for a very long time and are very well established. And you know, I think this this has become a it's, it's a relatively well contested market with a lot of players out there. And I think fees have kind of compressed as a as a result. So typically, we'd see those as being somewhat lower. In that sort of fifty to to sixty mark, perhaps with with good negotiation power, I think what what's most interesting now on fees is the idea of um, China all share strategies. I think this is sort of the, the the newer breed of products, which is you know much less established versus the other two markets, which are have been around for a while. So these these sort of all shares products, which you know kind of as the, as the name suggests, really have have that flexibility to to kind of go anywhere in China um, and really sort of opened up as we've seen the A share market become. Um, become more accessible to to overseas investors so the fact that this is a relatively new asset class with fewer managers and, and, and you know, generally shorter track records we've seen pretty interesting sort of early bird pricing i think we're still at that stage where investors can can command a pretty good deal for these kind of products and we, we could see something in the region of, of a sort of 40 to 50 basis points here um and i think while while that's kind of based on you know a newer product that's not not established you know for the most part these managers offering all shares products have you know, existing capabilities individually in the, in the onshore and the offshore markets, which are effectively being combined into, into one. So while you don't have the sort of live evidence of, of perhaps this, this all share product, you can clearly point to evidence of, of, of how they add value in the, in the underlying markets themselves. And uh, that can give you quite a, quite a bit of conviction to, to invest with these managers. So fees here are you know, particularly attractive at the moment, um, I would say, you know, while we're still at that sort of early bird stage. Mm-hmm. Now we can't, have a conversation about China without ESG and it's a conversation that many asset owners are always sort of struggling. You sort of touched on a little bit around the governance point of view, but you know, do investors need to sacrifice something in terms of the ESG aspect? How do they sort of blend that piece in um, when, they, when they think about allocating to China? 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is something that, that we've, we've definitely come across in, in the work that we've done in China with, with, with manager searches. So, I mean, this, this, this broader concept of ESG, I think, is, is, is less, less understood in, in the Chinese market. I think Chinese companies generally have a lesser awareness of ESG investing and, and what it means to, to sort of global investors. But I think, you know, from what we've seen, that, that definitely is sort of changing here. Um, so I think the you know the inclusion of the the China A shares in in the major indices and you know greater um, greater coverage by MSCI for example has, has really brought in this this new wave of of international investors to, to the market. And I think many of these will uh, will adhere to ESG policies and practices and have certain expectations when it comes to ESG. Um, and I think you know the companies have kind of taken notice of this this approach over the last few years as, as they've you know had more dialogue with with global investors and you know we definitely see them uh, some. Sort of taking steps here to, to kind of integrate this in a, in a sensible way, um, and I think what we've also seen, you know, from talking to, to managers is a, you know, a growing awareness of, of ESG investing by by companies based on, um, you know, actually efforts by the sort of Chinese government and the, and the regulators there to improve disclosure on, on company performance around ESG, you know, particularly on the environmental side. Um, so I think we've seen a lot more companies and, and asset managers talking and being able to access data on environmental issues like like pollution when they're, they're looking at companies. Um, so I think, you know, while, while governance clearly is, is, is the, the one area that I think people most associate with China and, and being most hot on that particular area, I think environmental has become, you know, pretty material as well. Um, when, we, when we sort of think about the, the manager universe, um, I think we, we have definitely seen a, a, dis- a difference between the local boutiques and the global managers as to how they approach ESG and the way that they think about it in China. You know, I think for, for the global managers, you know, many of these, if not all of them, will have their own sort of firm-wide ESG philosophies and practices and expectations that need to be incorporated. And you know, for them, China is, is no different to elsewhere. So we've seen that sort of translation of what they're doing elsewhere into, into China. So typically that, that does come at sort of a higher level, but also at a, at a more sort of fundamental stock level and, and, and on occasion sort of exclusionary screens. There's obviously some some large asset managers out there who will routinely um, automatically exclude particular sectors from, from all portfolios. Uh, and that, again, that has to apply to China. So things like alcohol and tobacco, you know, might be, might be ruled out from, uh, from the get go. So there is sort of uh, that aspect to it. Uh, but I think there is a definitely a growing acceptance and adoption of, of the idea that, you know, ESG does matter in China and, and it can impact both sort of portfolio risk and, and long-term return. Um, but I guess, for the most part, you know, most investors within China are probably at the stage where they're, they're still learning about this concept and understanding how, how it can be integrated. Um, I think there's probably less, fewer strategies out there that, that really have a, a sort of front and center ESG label where, where investors can say, you know, whether ESG adds value or not. I think this is probably the problem that, you know, investors globally are faced with, with any asset class really is showing that there's no, you know, certainly no performance cost, but, but certainly, um, yeah, Understanding whether there's any performance uh, give up uh, by, by, by thinking about ESG versus not thinking about ESG. And I think, you know, China is probably a little bit behind where other markets are now. And it doesn't quite have that, that data yet to, to show that the, there's no sort of sacrifice that needs to be made in, in pursuit of you know, being ESG aware or, or being sustainable. Um, and I think one of the, the key aspects with ESG really is, you know, what we've seen in, in broader emerging markets as well really is around the availability of data on ESG and the quality of this data. So I think this, um, you know, we do still tend to find there are gaps in the data set, which which makes it a little bit more difficult to assess. Maybe maybe not the companies as they are today, but perhaps the trajectory they've had in terms of ESG over the last few years, because 
they're kind of just starting to report ESG data. So we don't know how how they're trending and, and what the sort of evolution is over time. Um, so that that's something that um, you know is, is is different to other to other markets. And I think it also makes it somewhat more difficult for the, the systematic type investors to integrate ESG in a meaningful way because they're they're obviously reliant on this this ESG data, which which does come with its with its flaws. So, you know, I think we we have tended to find the, the stronger ESG candidates um, tended to be the sort of fundamental bottom up stock pickers who can, you know, get out there and do the work and, and dig through the weeds and not have to rely necessarily on this data, which which doesn't quite cover all the um, all the bases. Um, I think again the, the the sort of market cap aspect of this is definitely relevant as well because you know we do see this huge variation and in, in the level of ESG information between the, the different size of companies. So you know the, the large cap stocks, the mega caps that, that typically are based in in, in in the offshore markets, you know, tend to have better ESG disclosure than than the smaller mid cap companies in China. Um, and I think clearly these these companies have have larger budgets to to allocate to to this kind of topic and. Can, uh, can commit more resources to it. So we've seen that definitely translated in, in the way that they think about ESG and communicate about it. And they probably learned more from, from what global investors are doing and are probably more ahead of the curve than, 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 uh, than, than in the, the sort of domestic market. So um, yeah, I think they've definitely been able to pick up on this trend of, of what international investors expect and are doing and, and kind of get ahead of that. But yeah, I think we, we do see this, this big discrepancy between what, what the large caps are doing and, and versus the, uh, the small and the mid caps. All right, that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Rob. Thanks, Alex. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.